VCY America presents Crosstalk, a nationwide call-in program discussing issues that have an effect on our families, our communities, our churches, our nation, and our world. Crosstalk, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns for biblical principles. And now live by satellite and around the world on the internet at vcyamerica.org. Here is today's Crosstalk. And friends, we thank you for joining us for a very unique but fascinating topic on the program today. Uh, There are many skeptics that treat the Bible today as just fairy tale or myth. Uh, Some say it can't be trusted. Uh, Others will say, well, it's just full of contradictions and errors. And yet others even doubt the very locations and the events that the Bible describes. Well, while the historical accuracy of the Bible has fallen under, well, rather intense and and increased scrutiny today and has been a topic of debate, New archaeological discoveries from an expanding host of ancient sites found in the Bible lands continue to provide evidence pertaining to questions of reliability. Joining us today, we welcome back to Crosstalk Dr. Titus Kennedy, a professional archaeologist, research fellow at Discovery Institute, a consultant, writer, guide for history and archaeological documentaries and curricula. Uh, he currently directs archaeological projects in Bible lands. He has researched and photographed archaeological sites and artifacts around the world. Uh, he's the author of the newly released The Essential Archaeological Guide to Bible Lands, Uncovering Biblical Sites of the Ancient Near East and Mediterranean World. And uh, Dr. Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me, what what drew your interest to the field of archaeology? My interest really started with history. Uh, When I was in elementary school, I didn't know that archaeology even existed. I just knew about history books. But uh, I had two events in third and then fourth grade that kind of drew me into archaeology, not just history. And the first was visiting an archaeological site with my family, where not only could I see that they had excavated these ancient structures, but they even did some reconstructions to help people see what things looked like in the past. Mm-hmm. And you know, before that, I had no idea that there were all of these ruins that were preserved in some form around the world. Then second, uh, one of my teachers gave me a book on the first excavations at Troy, and that excavation was Heinrich Schliemann. And so then I found out that people actually went to these sites and they, they excavated and discovered new things that they were able to correlate to history. And in cases like uh, the site of Troy and Homer's Iliad, they were able to correlate uh, an ancient text to archaeological discoveries. So from then on, I, I learned about the connection between archaeology and the Bible, and that's where uh, I am today. Uh, do you recall what was your first find, your first discovery? Uh, my first discovery, uh, so the first archaeological excavations that I worked on were actually in the United States, in California, and it was a, a more of a paleontological site, so it was a, a mammoth, but mm-hmm. also some uh, paleo-Indian material. Interesting. Uh, sometimes we think of archaeology as just finding some object, and we focus on the object as an end in itself, but uh, in your book, what we're t- discussing today, you indicate that archaeological sites have been instrumental for furthering understanding of ancient locations, geography, history, chronology, economics, language, religion, and culture of the biblical world. Comment on that, if you would. Sure. So if we didn't know where any of these ancient sites were, then we would have a a very different view or very different understanding of geography and specifically biblical geography. So we Mm -hmm. could look at the text and we can make some assumptions and we could probably put together some maps about general locations, but actually going out on the ground and finding these archaeological sites, then we're able to pinpoint the geography of these things and exactly where they are, and and in many cases even do a comparison between the geographic descriptions in the Bible and the geography that we actually see of those sites. So informing us and also corroborating. Um, As to other categories, things like uh, linguistics or translation, for example, there are times when we encounter words in the Bible 
that without the aid of archaeology, we wouldn't know exactly how to translate those. Uh, probably the, the most obvious example of this comes from a, a word in the book of Samuel that it's, is pim in Hebrew. And if you look in older translations prior to the 1900s, you will see some, some different attempts at translating this word, but they didn't know what it meant. But this artifact was discovered first at the site of Gezer, and it was a stone weight, and it was a value of two-thirds of a shekel, and it had inscribed on it the word Pim. And so then, then we understood that Pim was a specific weight used during the time of the, the monarchy period in ancient Israel that was two-thirds of a shekel, so then they could translate that correctly. So those are just a couple yeah. of examples. Wow, and it goes well beyond that. And friends, you'll you'll see a lot of that uh, unfolded in this, this book here as well. Um, so you're, you're really taking a look at the ancient biblical world. Uh, help us understand how immense was that ancient biblical world? Well, geographically, it, it stretched from what what is now Iran or Persia in the east, all the way over to Egypt in the, or even Sudan, modern-day Sudan in the southwest. And then, of course, in New Testament times, we're, we're going over to and north to Rome and other parts of the Roman Empire. We could even throw Spain in that briefly, as Paul does, does mention Spain in his letter to the Romans. And then if we go north, we're going north all the way to the area of Armenia today. So it's it's quite a vast area, mm-hmm. essentially what we might call the Middle East and the Mediterranean. So there are a lot of books that are out today that focus just on the sites in the Holy Land, and they're very fascinating. But but you've gone throughout the geographical region, throughout the ancient world of the Bible, and you actually break it down in your book by the various geographic regions, and that's that's your approach to it, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, as you said, there are quite a few books that look at biblical history, uh, geography, and even archaeology that focus on the Holy Land. And so those sites are often more familiar to people. There's, there's been much more written on them. But there's very little from a biblical perspective or looking into the biblical connections that looks at sites in places like Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. uh, even even Egypt, uh, Armenia, Turkey, and and to some degree as well Greece and Rome. Although uh, that that has been the subjects of, of more research and publication. We're talking with Dr. Titus Kennedy today, author of the Essential Archaeological Guide to Bible Lands. We'll tell you later, friends, how you can get a copy of this really, really fascinating book. But uh, just a couple other foundational questions here. Uh, what helps you to find and locate these ancient sites? I mean, some of these are names we don't see any anywhere in our maps today, and some of these places are so ancient that there were likely not maps that we have of them today. So how do you go about even locating them? Right. If we go way back in the ancient history, people didn't have maps that, as we think of today. And the, the earliest maps weren't really maps in the sense that we would use today. Uh, they, were, they were very sort of broad, pointing to areas and naming and things like that. But how do we figure these out? Well, there's a few different ways. We're looking for a biblical site. Uh, first of all, we have the biblical text itself, and it gives us the name of a place, and it will identify or have identifying information that would allow us to understand, is this a mountain? Is this a city? Is it a village? So that's one, one criteria. If it's a city or a village, a town, something like that, then we know we're lo- what kind of archaeological site we're looking for, and there may be reference there to other locations, such as other cities or say, a a river or a mountain or a valley or something like that. And so we can look at the geography and we can narrow things down a bit more. And then we would go in and either by foot or sometimes using drones to do a survey and find where there are some archaeological remains. This might just be broken pieces of pottery scattered all over a site. Uh, It may be some ancient architecture is still visible and then we're able to identify, okay, this was an archaeological site, and 
we we may or may not be able to identify the name of it definitively at that point, but that's one method. Um, another is that a lot of the names are actually preserved or have been preserved over the centuries. So we look at names in the Bible, and then sometimes those names are preserved through uh, other languages, such as into Greek and then into Arabic, and they survive today in the name of some village or place. And so we might be able to, to locate something by doing that. And in other cases, it, it may just be uh, essentially by chance. You start working on a site, you don't know what it is, you excavate, and then you find an inscription mm. at the site that identifies the name of that city. Very interesting. Wow. So combination of, the, uh, of things here to, to, to determine that site. And speaking about this, and we're going to get into the book more in just a moment, but help us understand what an archaeological site is from this standpoint. I, I ask you this because you refer in your book to various strata or layers and indicate it must be based on chronology. Tell us what you mean by that. Uh, so an archaeological site is, is going to be any location where we have archaeological material. Uh, so it could be something as small as a campsite. It could even be a cemetery. Uh, but usually we're talking about something like a village, a town, or a city. Now, you mentioned strata, you mentioned layers. Mm-hmm. So within an archaeological site, there are usually going to be different periods of time in which people live there. So think of Jerusalem, for instance. It's It's been continuously occupied more or less for about 5,000 years. So it's not just that they remove all the building material from uh, an earlier time and then rebuild. They build on top, and they continue to build on top. And sometimes mm-hmm. this is because of destructions, and sometimes it's it's intentional. Uh, it's easier to fill in old ruined buildings and then flatten the earth out and build on top. So each of those those time periods essentially is going to be a different layer or different strata. And so we're able to correlate a time chronology to each of these different layers. And so that's why we we can say that ah this building is from the 8th century B.C. and the time of Hezekiah, or this building is from the 1st century A.D. and the time of Jesus. We're talking with uh, Dr. Titus Kennedy today, and we're just a minute from a break, and when we get into, uh, after the break, we're going to be delving further into the book itself and look through some of the regions uh, that that he is uncovering and uh, some of the finds from some of these regions. But friends, this is a comprehensive book. It is not a bore by any means. It is a captivating book with over 200 full-color photographs within the book as well, uh, showing these ancient ruins. And what it does, friends, it brings the Bible to life. So when when you read about, uh, you know, uh, Abram from the Ur of the Chaldees, you're going to to find the passages in this on on that uh, very aspect and so much more. But we'll delve into it further uh, in the book, Essential Archaeological Guide to Bible Lands. Dr. Titus Kennedy, our guest, back in just one minute here on Crosstalk, coming your way from the VCY American Network. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, geologist with the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, how much can scientists tell about an animal from its fossils? Chris, they can tell quite a bit, but oftentimes they claim too much. Let me give you an example. Recently, a few fragments of teeth were found in Morocco of a mammal no bigger than a small dog. But the evolutionary discoverers claim that it was of a small elephant. Evidently, the molars were more similar to elephant molars than anything else. But they didn't stop there. They claimed that this particular elephant didn't even have a trunk and that he hid in trees and hunted at night. Caught me some slack. How can they tell this from a few tooth fragments? Now, I'm not sure what this animal was, but I'm quite certain you can't look at a tooth and know all that. Evolutionists should stop telling evolutionary stories and get back to Genesis. Thanks, Dr. Morris. For more info on Genesis, visit us on the web at www.icr.org. 
Dr. Titus Kennedy, our guest here today, author of The Essential Archaeological Guide to Bible Lands. And uh, friends, just a real fascinating book. We'll tell you how you can obtain a copy in just a a little while here. Um, Dr. Kennedy, how long have you been an archaeologist? How many years? Uh, Well, I first started digging about 23 years ago. Okay. And I'd like to ask you this. So you've been doing it a couple decades here. What makes you say, wow? Really, anytime there's there's a new discovery, there's something unexpected, there's something that's really well preserved, mm-hmm. uh, all, of, all of those things are exciting. Wow. So the very first region that you unearth for us in your book is Mesopotamia and Persia. And I, I'm convinced looking at this section, we could spend an entire broadcast just on this region alone. But uh, just introduce us to this region, if you would. Sure. Mesopotamia is essentially the the area around the Tigris and Euphrates River. So today, this is mostly the modern country of Iraq, although you're going to have some of this in Syria as well as Iran. Okay. So uh, tell us about uh, Uruk, one of the first cities of the ancient world. Where is this located and what has been found there? Well, Uruk is in southern Mesopotamia, so today it's it's southern Iraq. And this is considered not, not just by archaeologists in general, as one of the first cities of the ancient world, but this is what the book, the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis as well. In Genesis 10, chapter 10, it, it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Uruk and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar. Hmm. So this is where we see a, a general correlation between the text of the Bible and archaeology in that Uruk is one of these earliest cities in the biblical text, and that's also confirmed by archaeology. Uh, in in the circles of ancient history and archaeologists, Uruk is quite famous because the of the antiquity of this city, uh, because of its its great size and its high degree of technology. All the things like ziggurats and ancient temples that it has. So it's sort of a, a window into the one of the earliest cities and city states in ancient history, uh, as well as a place where something happened that scholars often call the, the Uruk expansion. And this was when the, the city of Uruk sort of exported some aspects of its material culture to the world around it. And uh, in biblical terms, we might see a, a parallel for this in something like the Table of Nations, where people are going out from southern Mesopotamia after the Tower of Babel incident, and they are, they're taking with them some of this material culture, and then they're going and establishing new, new cities and new regions or even nations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, I've, and friends, there's so much material that, that is in here, but I am looking right now just at page 19, and uh, there, one of the things that I noticed as I went through your book is that there, there's evidence of the worship of false gods in so many of these regions, uh, and extensively, but you've got a picture of a, a ziggurat uh, on on page nineteen. What would what would this have been used for? Uh, a ziggurat was essentially a monument and a temple in one. So at the top of the ziggurat, they would have a temple or a house for the deity, and the priests would go up there in certain religious ceremonies. Uh, and this, this also ties into the idea of the gods being up high, uh, up at the tops of the mountains or up in the heavens. And so the, the ziggurat is sort of figuratively reaching up into the heavens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wonder also about this period in, in forms of writing, and I understand there's been found pictographic writings. Is that correct? Yes. So Uruk is the place where we find this earliest form of pictographic writing, where they're, they're essentially drawing pictures to represent things, words, ideas, and then from this develops more abstract writing where, 
where the the figures are going to be representing uh, syllables and sounds mm-hmm. later on. We read a lot about Babylon in the Bible. I mean, from cover to cover, Babylon is mentioned, and you've devoted many pages in your book to Babylon. Uh, just give us a, a few words about this ancient city. Well, Babylon, we we could argue that it is the most important city in the ancient world. I think certainly we could say it's the the most important ancient city in Mesopotamia because it did have massive influence for so long. Whereas Uruk had a lot of its influence and importance in in the very early period of history, Babylon did as well, but it continued far, far beyond that. Uh, Even into the time of Alexander the Great, Babylon was still one of the major cities of the ancient world, and it really only sort of fell off the map, so to speak, uh, once you get into the Roman period. And biblically, of course, Babylon has many, many connections. I mean, we have the Tower of Babel talked about in the Genesis narratives. Uh, We have just the city of Babel being named as one of the earliest cities of the ancient world in the Bible as well. Then, then we have all the interactions between the, the Israelites and the, the Judeans and Babel. Of course, uh, people like Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel goes and lives in Babylon, and the Jews are in exile in Babylon. And then it, it continues to exert quite a bit of influence and, and importance even during the time of the Persians and the Greeks. And friends, you'll find even multiple uh, photographs in this book on the Ishtar Gate and and uh, other uh, inscriptions from Nebuchadnezzar and so forth. Uh, there's an extension, uh, extensive section on Nineveh. There's Ur, the Chaldees, uh, readers can check on as well. But many of us are also familiar with the account of Esther in, in scriptures, and you actually have research in your book on Susa and, and the ruins of Susa. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was important to include in here. Uh, as, as I mentioned, lots of books that focus on cities, towns, and so forth in the, in the Holy Land area, but not so many on Mesopotamia and Persia. And, of course, Esther is an entire book of the Bible that is situated in Susa. Uh, the book of Nehemiah is also partly situated in Susa, and Daniel even, uh, and Daniel and Ezra also make reference to Susa. So I thought that that should be one of the cities that I would include. Um, and then in, in ancient history, in archaeology, Susa is also an extremely important city, uh, just beyond the, the biblical narrative. Uh, we're talking t- today with Dr. Titus Kennedy. Uh, section two of your book is on Egypt and Sinai, and many will right away think of not only Joseph, who was sold as a slave to Egypt, but Moses, who delivered it, who led the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, give us a, a brief comment on, on this region of Egypt and Sinai. Well, yeah, the most famous stories connecting the Bible with Egypt are, of course, as you said, Joseph and, and Moses with the Exodus. Uh, and so I, I do spend a considerable amount of time on those periods and the connections between these sites in Egypt and the time of, of Joseph and Moses and the Exodus. Uh, but then we also have quite a few connections between Egypt and other times in mm-hmm. biblical history. Uh, there, there are arguably some connections between the time of Joshua and the conquest of Canaan and the, uh, some of the letters that were written to the Egyptian pharaoh, Amenhotep III, a bit after the Exodus. Uh, we have numerous other Egyptian pharaohs and kings mentioned in the Bible, especially during the divided kingdom period. And so I talk about links between those kings and the archaeological findings in these various cities and the biblical narratives. And then uh, really all the, all the way through to the time of Jeremiah, uh, and then, of course, that brief visit by Jesus and his family after his birth. It's amazing, friends. It really makes the Bible come alive. You've got a very remarkable photo on page 83 in your book. It's titled Colossal Statue Base from Pi Ramesses. Uh, how large is this base? And it's very interesting. You know, when you look at this photo, you have a sculpture of large feet on this base, giving evidence that there was some large statue mounted there. And of course, my mind went to the time of uh, Nebuchadnezzar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But uh, that, it's really a, a remarkable photograph there. 
Yeah, uh, this this statue base is huge. So roughly, uh, if you were to stand next to it and extend your arms, uh, it w- it would be about the wingspan of a person wide. My, wow. Um, and it's again, I noticed in this section, amazing to see the evidence of false gods, false idol worship. Uh, you've got a, a shown items here from the from the Temple of Memphis with the god. Is it a Puta? Uh, Ptah. Ptah. Yes. Okay. And uh, yes. that, that's on page uh, ninety nine. Tell us about it. Sure. So ancient Egypt, like pretty much every polytheistic culture. Uh, had temples and shrines dedicated to various gods. Uh, so in, in Egypt, as we find in Mesopotamia and Greece and elsewhere, certain cities favored certain deities. And in Memphis, uh, Ptah was one of the, the main deities. Uh, he was actually thought of in this region as the, the creator deity in the Egyptian creation myth uh, from the area of Memphis. So his temple was, was a major site there. Uh, but they didn't just worship one god with uh, each city. So they, they also had other gods, and it might change over time. But in Memphis, uh, we, we also see numerous other Egyptian gods, uh, as well as shrines, you know, smaller places of worship to various Egyptian deities. Yeah, and uh, do we see some of our... Towns and cities around the world named after some of these. I mean, I didn't even know Memphis was a temple for for a false god. Yes, yes. So we have uh, Memphis, of course, in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So that that's named after the Memphis in Egypt, and uh, you you get that with various uh, ancient cities. Not mm-hmm. not all of them, of course. There aren't a lot of places that have taken on the name Babylon or Nineveh, but but we do see some other uh, sites like that. Friends, you're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America, and I'm going to extend our interview here into the next after the next break as well, talking about the next chapter in this book. But just want to mention this Essential Archaeological Guide to Bible Lands is being featured this month as a book of the month at the VCY bookstore. This is a it's a hardcover book, very durable. It's over 475 pages, has more than uh, 200 full color photos that show ancient ruins, bring the Bible to life. Uh, the book is hot off the press, retails for thirty four ninety nine, which is a bargain for this reference book. However, however, through February 29th, 2024, as a book of the month, the VCY Bookstore is making this book available at 50% off, just $17.49 plus any applicable tax and or shipping. Uh, but uh, again, this is a 475-page hardcover book, over 200 photographs. It's available online right now at uh, vcy.com vcy.com, or you may reach out to the bookstore at this number, one 722 4829 That's one 722 4829 This is only good through February 29th, 2024, as a book of the month at the VCY Bookstore. But you can reach out to them today by phone. You can reach out uh, on the website, vcy.com. Just remarkable. It's one of those you got to pick up, you look at it, you, and you're just, the, the, the minutes just go by so very quickly because you're entrapped into uh, the not only the photographs, but the writings about these sites as well. Well, we'll be back in one minute to learn more about the book after the break. This is Crosstalk on VCY America. There is no heartache equal to that of losing a loved one to suicide. Unanswered questions, despair, and perhaps self-blame can leave those behind with feelings of hopelessness. But true hope and help can be found in Christ alone. In the booklet Hope Beyond Despair, author Julie Gossick shares from personal experience how the truth of Scripture and the hope of the gospel can bring comfort to those who are living in the aftermath of suicide. She addresses what the Bible has to say on this issue and provides a lasting hope based on biblical principles. The book Hope Beyond Despair is available from VCY for a donation of $6 or three copies for a donation of $15. Just ask for Hope Beyond Despair when you call with your gift at 1-800-729-9829. You may also write VCY America, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208. 
You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. We're discussing today the Essential Archaeological Guide to Bible Lands. Dr. Titus Kennedy is with us today to put this book together. It really is a lifetime of work that's gone into here. He's a professional archaeologist. And friends, when you read about different cities in the Bible, you can use this as a reference book to go and learn more about that site. Uh, Again, we've got a a, a scoffing world today. You know, the Bible's not true. No, those places don't exist. Well, when you unearth these things, Dr. T- Kennedy, it, it is there. It is, you see it, and, and, and it comes together. It, I mean, God's Word is true, whether these things are found or not, but, but to see this evidence pour forth is rather amazing, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It is, it is incredible. It's exciting. And as you said, the, these things don't, don't make something true, but I think it is important for us to see that there is evidence from history and archaeology that corroborates what is found in the Bible. Friends, not only for your own personal study, but uh, I, I know pastors who would like to have a book like this to uh, use as a reference guide as well and really sets context. Uh, teachers, uh, small group leaders as well, uh, personal Bible study uh, to have this alongside. And as you read the scriptures and you read about uh, some location, uh, to, to be able to pick this up and learn more about it. Well, the third chapter in the book is on the Levant. Uh, tell us about this region and some of the finds there. Well, the, the Levant is a geographic term for essentially what we might call Canaan, but, uh, or, or a little bit beyond that. But in modern terms, it's going to encompass countries of Israel and the Palestinian territories, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, or at least southern Lebanon, and, uh, and southeastern, southwestern Syria, and the the Sinai, perhaps even. So it's going to cover a lot of modern countries, and so I just put that one uh, geographic term in there to help us. But this this is also often referred to as the Holy Land, and why is that? Because so much biblical history occurred there, and of course uh, Jerusalem is sort of the epicenter and focal point of that, and where Jesus walked, so the, the Gospels are all centered in this area. And you, you couldn't do a, a book on biblical sites without talking about this area extensively. So, uh, and it's amazing to see the, the, the many, many things you have in this section. I, I've been teaching through the book of Nehemiah, for instance, and we've talked about the repair of the walls between the towers, the repair of the gates, etc. But on page 152 in your book, you actually have a picture of, of tower from the time of Nehemiah. I do, yes. Nehemiah is very, very interesting. That's actually become one of my favorite books to look into archaeologically and historically. And if we go back in time, uh, say in the early 20th century, we didn't know much of anything about this period of Nehemiah, the Persian period. And so uh, thankfully there's been a lot of archaeological work done and, and historical research that illuminates this time of Nehemiah, and uh, in particularly even Nehemiah in Jerusalem, and the, the rebuilding of the walls that he oversaw, and the construction of things like you pointed out, uh, one of those towers there in Jerusalem. Yeah, amazing. Uh, tell us about the Pool of Siloam. I mean, the scriptures do reference this pool. Yeah, the Pool of Siloam. Well, we have we have two pools of Siloam, interestingly. So we have the Pool of Siloam in the Old Testament that was the result of work done by King Hezekiah in about 701 B.C. when the Assyrians were coming to besiege the city. So he brought a water supply into the city, had a new tunnel carved that went directly from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam in southern Jerusalem inside the walls. But then we see in the Gospels uh, the Gospel of John, particularly, and that miracle of Jesus in the Pool of Siloam is mentioned there in the first century. Now, uh, even though these are right in the same area, they're actually two two different pools uh, right next to each other. So there's the the sort of Old Testament or Hezekiah's Pool of Siloam, and then there's this Roman period Pool of Siloam that is in connection with with the time of Jesus. And both of these now have been discovered. Uh, the, the first century Pool of Siloam was only discovered uh, about 20 years ago or less, although the, the Hezekiah Pool was known earlier. 
So those are important uh, discoveries that confirm the the geography and the names and some of the features of ancient Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And friends, you'll find photographs of these in the book as well. On page 172, there's information on the city of Ai. I mean, we know the Israelites had defeat there after the victory of Jericho because of the sin of Achan. Uh, Speaking of Jericho, there's a section of... uh, uh, on this city as well. And uh, uh, let me ask you this, uh, uh, Dr. Kennedy, as as you visit these sites and have the pictures and have unearthed things, th- does your mind as an ar- archaeologist, do you wander back to what it might have been like when when these were, were active, busy streets or, or city walls or whatever it might be? Yes, I do try to visualize what these places looked like at that time. And, uh, you know, this can also help us in our archaeology in terms of interpretation and even recording and, and excavation, uh, because if we're, if we're thinking about how how are these buildings laid out in ancient times or how mm-hmm. is the city laid out in ancient times, then, then if we have parallels that inform us about that, then we can better plan our excavations where we're going to be digging a square or, uh, you know, if we think we might run into another wall or a floor or a street, things like that. Mm-hmm. Friends, every one of these chapters in the book, I could spend a full crosstalk just asking about the things in there, but you'll find it in the book. But I, I'd like to uh, move forward. I, you know, I was going to have us talk about Jacob's Well and other matters here, the high places, but on page 285, you, you have what's called the pilot stone. What is that? The pilot stone is a stone inscription. It, it was an official Roman government inscription on stone, uh, written in Latin, and it was the the first inscription ever discovered that mentioned Pontius Pilate. And, and not only did it give us his name, but it also gave us his title, his position, the prefect of Judea, which is a type of governor. And so that confirmed, more or less, the existence of Pontius Pilate, although I don't think he was too in question, because we did have ancient historical sources talking about him. Mm-hmm. But but it really gave us archaeological confirmation of him, and also his title, uh, which, interestingly enough, one of the Roman historians actually gets wrong. And that was found at the site of Caesarea Maritima, which was the Roman capital of the province of Judea, during the early first century. So the Romans decided to locate their capital there, uh, and then Jerusalem, the historic capital, they also maintained the presence in. Friends, you'll find a picture of that pilot stone, as I mentioned, on page 285. Um, so much more about this section I'd like to ask, but uh, chapter 4 is entitled Anatolia. What What is this region? Anatolia is basically what today would be comprised of modern Turkey and Armenia. Uh, so Anatolia is sort of like the Levant is a, a geographic term, mm-hmm. and it just made it more simple than trying to list out different countries or a bunch of different ancient regions, because if we look at modern Turkey today, it, it actually overlays many different uh, ancient nations and different regions. And in this in, in this section of the the book, you've got a whole lot of pages on the locations and information on the seven churches listed in the book of Revelation. Yes, so all those churches were located in what is now western Turkey, uh, what the Roman province of Asia. And so uh, this region is very important for New Testament studies, but we also have connections with the Old Testament, the, the Hittites, for example, and then we have Mount Ararat, uh, where Noah landed. We have the, the kingdom of Urartu, or the kingdom of Ararat, which is mentioned in the Old Testament as well. Hmm. You even have a section on Patmos, a picture of the island of Patmos. Isn't that where John was exiled, where he wrote the book of Revelation? Yeah, that's right. And that was one of my favorite places to visit. It's, it's pretty difficult to get to. It's extremely remote, but you can really understand how his, his exile there was effective because of how far away from everything it was, this, this tiny little island isolated out there in the Aegean Sea. Well, well, friends, you'll also find on page 384 a section on Ararat, and and uh, because of the clock, we're going to just move into the final chapter, which is the region of Greece, Rome, and the Mediterranean. A, a brief description of this region. 
Uh, so for this, I'm I'm looking at the Roman Empire period. So this is going to be a New Testament material almost exclusively, and looking at uh, sites in modern Greece and also Rome. I I put in the Mediterranean there because there are a couple more islands in the Mediterranean Sea that I address, such as Cyprus with the entry on Paphos, and then the island of Malta, where Paul was mm-hmm. shipwrecked on his way to Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting there, and uh, this this section has so much, so many of these places visited, friends, by the Apostle Paul. You'll read about them uh, here in this book. Uh, about, uh, something that caught my attention, though, on page 438, you have a picture of the Bema at Corinth. What can you tell us about this? Well, the Bema at Corinth is the site of a, a pretty famous and important event in the New Testament. Uh, that's in the book of Acts, after Paul has been at Corinth for some time, and teaching in the synagogue and other places. The Jews who rejected the gospel want to get rid of Paul, and so they make a complaint to the governor. And so Paul is, is brought before the governor, and this is, it's an official proceeding. And so that would occur in Roman cities at, at the Bema, the judgment seat. And so the, the governor, who at that time was Gallio, he was on the Bema making judgment about this case. And Paul was, was there before him and his accusers. And so we can go there to Corinth and see that Bema where Paul was on trial My. in front of Gallio. Amazing, friends. Amazing. Um, I wish we had a couple more hours here, but let me open our phone lines. Friends, if you have questions you'd like to ask of our guest here today, our number is 800-733-9829 for Crosstalk. 1-800-733-9829. Taking your questions or brief comments today. And uh, let me also just mention uh, this book, and The Essential Archaeological Guide to Bible Lands. It's being featured this month as a book of the month of the VCY Bookstore. It is a hardcover, durable book, just over 475, about close to 480 pages, more than 200 full-color photos that are in this book showing the ancient ruins. But it's a book that brings the Bible to life. When the Bible talks about the high places, friends, there's photos of some of these things there. This this Bema, we know Scripture tells us we're going to appear before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. What What is that about? Well, friends, you're going to see what that, that Bema is like, the Bema at Corinth uh, in the book as well. The book is normally thirty four ninety nine, uh, but through February 29th, 2024, our VCY bookstore is making this available at half off, 50% off, just $17.49 plus any applicable tax and or shipping. It really is a book that uh, you'd want to have one to look at yourself, one that you can share with others, uh, you know, Bible studies, your personal studies, sharing with your, your, your pastor, Bible study leaders, small group. Uh, but it's available, vcy.com, vcy.com, or you may reach out by calling one 722 4829. That's the number to the bookstore. Just a single line. So if it's busy, just call them back a little bit later. They're open till 6 p.m. Central Time, uh, 7 o'clock Eastern, uh, 1-888-722-4829. Our lines are packed, so we're going to, to take a break here, and uh, we'll come back with more right after the break, taking your phone calls for our final segment. This is Crosstalk coming your way from the VCY American Network. For the Worldview Report, I'm Brandon House. Our website is worldviewreport.com. In my second book that came out in 1995, I had an entire chapter on something known as the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. By UN, obviously, that's the United Nations. In that book, I was warning about a global treaty that many nations were signing on to that would destroy the God-given parental authority we have so enjoyed here in America. Many nations have signed on to it. America is one of the last nations not to do so. Well, over the years, I've been warning that it looks like the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child is being implemented piecemeal by many state legislatures as they undermine parental authority. The latest, Montana CPS takes 14-year-old girl to Wyoming for gender transition, so-called, against her parents' wishes. Sadly, we are seeing the globalists accomplish their goal of attacking God-given parental authority.
You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. Truly a fascinating book here. And our thanks to the VCY Bookstore for going to bat for you and, and working out the special arrangement for you to get it half off. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. We're going to begin with Dave in Phoenix, Arizona. Dave, thanks for calling Crosstalk. You're on the air. And if Dr. Kennedy could tell us where he feels the uh, Red Sea crossing was specifically. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Sure. Uh, this is something that I address in my book, and I would place it somewhere around the Bala Lakes area today, uh, which is on the western side of Sinai and in the eastern border of what was ancient Egypt. Uh, this is near a couple of archaeological sites which are identified with Pithom and Sukkoth, but obviously to to the east of those, again, outside of what at the time was considered Egypt. Some, some And on that topic, some have said, oh, we have discovered uh, ancient chariot wheels in, in, you know, underwater there. Have they been found? Uh, no, they haven't. Okay. Those are some false claims that were some modern material and then a misidentification of a specific species of coral that sort of looks like uh, an axle and a wheel on its side. Dave, thanks for the call. Let's go to Chris in Cashton, Wisconsin. You're on the air. Hello, Chris. Hello. Yes, hi. Um, I'm curious as to whether or not uh, uh, you have found any evidence of the, the Nephilim or the Anakim, the giants of the land, as uh, described uh, in Genesis and also other early early books of the Bible. Thank you, Chris. Uh, there are possibly some some literary references to the the names like Anakim, and also there are references to the Rephaim. Uh, as far as Nephilim, I think that some of the the stories like. Gilgamesh, or or even much later in time, Hercules. But looking back into these earlier times, sort of a demigod, a combination between human and gods, that, that that's how the ancient peoples later on understood them or, or misunderstood them. As far as archaeologically, uh, for, for people like the Anakim that are described as being these very large, imposing figures for the Israelites, uh, there, there have been some skeletal remains that were uh, about six foot nine, some, somewhere in that area. So there were some people in the region that were much, much taller than average, which was about uh, five five in ancient times. So that's kind of where we are right now. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Kara in White City, Kansas, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm curious uh, about the discovery um, through the decades, actually, of the skeletal structure of Noah's Ark. They believe it fits many of the specifications, including anchor stones and ancient village names, uh, with the um, fact that eight got off of the Ark. A number of the uh, village translations uh, of their towns were um, about eight. Okay, let me have him comment on this because he does cover the Ararat. Uh, you, your your thoughts on this uh, area? Uh, well, right now we have no uh, definitive physical remains of the Ark. Uh, we do really the only piece where I could say there is any physical remain that's identified with the Ark is is a piece of petrified wood that was supposedly recovered in the 300s A.D. by a monk from uh, up on Mount Ararat. Uh, other than that, no, there have been a lot of claims, but all of them have been uh, debunked or found to be something completely different. So while, while we could say, here's the mountain where it seems Noah landed, and we have ancient references outside the Bible to this event, and even, and even to supposedly remains in ancient times, 2,000-plus years ago, uh, today, we don't really have anything or we can't, you know, point to this is some remains of the Ark. Kara, thank you for the call. There is a section in the book on uh, Ararat uh, there as well. Uh, Gary in Mesa, Arizona, you're on the air. Yeah, uh, my question deals with the uh, the advent of writing and other intellectual developments usually attributed to the Sumers of the Sumerian society. 
and the cuneiform with the wedge writing and all that. How can anybody possibly understand any of that? <clears throat> and uh, what can you tell me about their civilization, and uh, what is a stele? Okay, and we've got about 60 seconds for you to answer that, Dr. Kennedy. So, yes, the Sumerians are credited with inventing writing, or at least this would be the, the earliest writing that we've recovered, and it was pictographic at first, and cuneiform developed after that, which cuneiform was more abstract uh, but adapted from pictographs and then representing syllables. And as far as a stele, a stele is a, a monument, usually a monument stone that's inscribed with pictures and or writing, and it was used to commemorate uh, important events or sometimes used in worship. Gary, thank you for your call. And we've run out of time for further calls. We're apologizing to others on hold, and I know others of you trying to get through on the program today. Uh, it's a very comprehensive book and uh, really fascinating. Again, so many of the uh, pictures uh, in here and the writings, the research, uh, really helps bring the Bible to life uh, for the reader. And uh, you may not be a book that you read from cover to cover. Some will do that, but otherwise it's, it's going to looking the reference to the area that you're looking for. Uh, the Essential Archaeological Guide to Bible Lands. Uh, again, it's being featured this month as a book of the month at the VCY Bookstore, a hardcover book, uh, over 200 full-color photos that are in this book, uh, uh, close to 480 pages showing the ancient ruins uh, of, of scriptures and writing about uh, what's been found and unearthed in various locations. But uh, retails for thirty four ninety nine, but through February 29. 2024, the VCY Bookstore making this available at half off, just $17.49 plus any applicable tax and or shipping to you. Those of you who are driving distance by the bookstore, 107th and Capitol Drive, you can do so. But it is available right now online at vcy.com, vcy.com, or by calling 1-888-722-4829, one 888 7224829 Dr. Kennedy thank you for being with us on the broadcast today Thank you for having me and friends years of research and and photographs and and archaeological digging and research has gone into this this book here today but what a powerful testimony it is to the truth the authenticity of scriptures it's a testimony to that again uh, friends as we said before the scriptures are true regardless but uh, it is just a joy to see so much that's been unearthed and discovered uh, to uh, prov you know provide these evidences as well well our time is gone a very unique program, informative program today, and we thank you for joining us right here on Crosstalk. You've been listening to Crosstalk via satellite and the Internet from VCY America. Views expressed may or may not be those of this station. For a CD of today's program, send a donation of $6 or more to VCY Tape Ministry, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208. Or download by RSS or podcast from crosstalkamerica.com. And join us again for Crosstalk. Crosstalk.